Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with Thomas T.J. Rogers. Originally from Buffalo, New York, today, T.J. calls Mexican Town and Southwest Detroit home. He works at Freedom House Detroit. Freedom House Detroit is a temporary home for indigent survivors of persecution from around the world who are seeking asylum in the United States and Canada. The organization's mission is to uphold a fundamental American principle, one inscribed on the base of the Statue of Liberty, providing safety for those yearning to breathe free. TJ serves as program manager at Freedom House, where he is in charge of the day-to-day operations of the organization. He's passionate about advocacy, with over five years of first-hand experience providing direct services to asylum seekers. Rogers works to generate awareness about the plight and courage of asylum seekers, while encouraging individuals and organizations to increase their support. It was his learning of the Rwandan genocide that sparked a lifelong love affair with Africa. Learning about Rwanda beyond the genocide, he came to fully appreciate the country's beautiful culture, including traditional dance, food, music, and language. He's also particularly drawn to Uganda, a country that most know for its efforts to criminalize homosexuality. He's drawn to the country not only for its rich, beautiful culture, but also because of the plight, courage, and resiliency of a Kuchu community. An issue as an out and proud gay man he can relate to personally. He coordinated the visit of Frank Mugisho, Executive Director of Sexual Minorities Uganda, or SMUG, to Detroit in February 2014 to speak about the challenges faced by Kuchus, the LGBT individuals in Uganda, which resulted in an international partnership between Smug and Freedom House. In September 2015, he was featured as one of five LGBTQ Detroiters to Watch in Pride Source, Michigan's LGBT magazine, for his efforts to bridge the gap between the U.S. LGBT community and LGBTQ asylum community. He was invited to participate in a roundtable conversation at the UNHCR Washington, D.C. office about alternatives to detention for LGBTQ asylum seekers. Rogers is also on the steering committee of LGBT Freedom and Asylum Network, a board member of the Mary Turner Center for Advocacy, and a proud member of Amnesty International. TJ, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm so happy to have you. How are you doing today? 
thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. I'm doing well. Now, um, you started out in Buffalo, and when you were going to school, what were you studying? You went to, is it Canisius College in Buffalo? Yes, I went to Canisius College, and, you know, the the long, short story is um, I started college as a graphic design major, and while I Mm. enjoyed doing it, I realized about a year and a half into it that it wasn't something I saw myself um, finding fulfilling for the rest of my life, and so wound up switching to communications with the focus in public relations um, with a crazy idea in my head that one day I would be uh, like an event planner for, for an organization, for a nonprofit whose mission I believed in. Through my uh, extracurriculars on campus and in the community, I, I started to realize that my passion was social justice and the intersectionality of various issues and my identity and uh, ended up minoring also in um, international relations, peace and justice, and sociology, which if I would go back and redo my education, I would have majored in one of those three minors. Yeah, so that, that's a bit about my education. Yeah, so you moved from Buffalo to, which is, is also known for its heavy snowfall, to Michigan. Yeah. You know? yes. <laughs> Almost like a tropical move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. When you got here, did you come here to work or were you just sort of checking out Michigan? You know, it was kind of a a mix of the two. I initially came through a program like AmeriCorps um, known as the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And so I'd never been to Detroit. I'd never heard of Freedom House until I interviewed with the organization for the placement. Um, But again, it was just a one-year placement. And so um, I came into it thinking, okay, it's one year. I'm going to get some professional experience, do something I enjoy working on an issue with a population that I'm I'm passionate about and, and care a lot about. And, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. And then, you know, halfway through it, I had already fallen in love with Detroit and, and Morehouse, and um, I, I, I pleaded to the program coordinator for, for JBC asking them to extend it. And so I wound up volunteering full-time for two years, and now um, next month it's going to be six years I've been here in Detroit and here at Freedom House. Well, you know, I think it, it's wonderful, too, and that you live in southwest Detroit because I think in southwest Detroit – Really, to me, that's one of the most diverse areas of the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, so was that one of the keys? Did you, you know, I, and you, can you walk to work? Because I know you're close. I mean, did that, did that, was one of the keys, the atmosphere around the people who were there? Yes, you know, um, you know, again, initially when I came with the organization, they had a house and everything, so I didn't get to choose where I lived. I lived in community oh, okay. with um, seven people my first year and six my second, and the house itself was, was here in southwest Detroit, about two miles away from Freedom House. And so mm-hmm. at that time, you know, I walked here quite frequently to and from work, of course, and then um, when I was looking for a place to live after my two years, I knew that I wanted to stay and live in this community because, as you say, the rich diversity, um, you know, according to census data and, and what I'm told, southwest Detroit, Mexican town, is one of the only areas that has not lost population. The population's not decreased. And so I found that particularly um, interesting as well. And, and again, you know, I'm, I'm only four miles, and so on a few occasions I have walked to work. <laughs> and um, I think, again, going back to the diversity piece, right, I, if there's anything I've learned about my time in Detroit, um, it's about my own identity, self-identity, and acknowledging what, what, that, what that means for each person. And mm-hmm. so thinking about my own experience, you know, I, I grew up in a suburb of Buffalo, um, town of Tonawanda, love it, wouldn't have changed anything, but 
um, it was a predominantly white neighborhood. And so mm-hmm. moving to Detroit um, was an eye-opener to me um, in the sense that I'd never had an experience living in a community that I felt was more representative of who we are as a human race. And so I found that to be very moving and, you know, caused me to say, okay, wherever life takes me from here right after this first, you know, initial one-year experience, right, um, I want to live in a community that's diverse, that is reflective of, you know, who we are as a people. And so that's definitely one of the things that made me want to stay. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I remember, I mean, and I'm probably dating myself, um, I was involved with Detroit Summer, and we did a project around Freedom House. And some of our young people met people from Freedom House. And I can recall, and I'll tell you, one of my prized possessions was um, at the Trumbleplex, they had a fundraiser for a family who was staying at Freedom House, and they had like a silent auction. And, of course, if you have a silent auction with community people, <laughs> you're not raising a whole lot of money, right? right. You know? So um, there is a picture there that was done by Pablo Davis that he had donated. And, you know, so I'm saying, well, I'm going to get this going. And I think I put down like $50, I mean, which I think most people look like, you know, everybody was doing like, you know, five, ten, And I said, well, I'm going to get this going, you know, $50 for that. And... Of course, that was the only bit, and I still have it on my wall that I look at every day, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So, yeah. But there was that, that thing about that, that people not only from Freedom House but from Southwest Detroit, from the Trembleplex, we were all there, and everybody sort of got it. And it was like, how do we help this family? And yeah. I think that, that that says a lot about that community. Absolutely. I'm sure you might get to this later on, but I, since we're talking about it, I'm going to run with it. I think, um, you know, I'm sure, again, you were following the funding crisis we were in earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And so um, particularly alarming that 60% of our, our annual budget federal funds was going to be cut, and they, we just had three months' notice. And so, but what I really want to focus on, again, the community aspect, right? In those two and a half months or so between um, our announcing to the community that we might have to close our doors, undertaking this massive fundraising effort, and then to being informed that our funding was going to be reinstated, citing a quote-unquote um, scoring error in our application, um, I, you know, we raised almost $300,000. And so almost wow. what would have been, you know, it was 390000 that we would have lost if, if the funding was in fact pulled. And so, you know, to think that we raised that much money in two and a half months, um, I'm going to use community in the sense of local and then community in terms of around the country, not political, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to think that we were able to do that, in these particularly challenging political times, heated times, you know, with the intense xenophobia and Islamophobia and and you name it, right? Um, I think that that demonstrates that regardless of the the headlines and and the individuals that that get, have access to the the loud um, amplifier, speakerphone sort of thing, I can't think of that word, um, blowhorn, whatever, Um, Mm -hmm. The reality is that a lot of people at the community level believe in the mission of Freedom House and believe that America is a country that welcomes others. And again, the diversity is what 
makes our community and our country such a rich and beautiful place, you know, one that's sought after by people all around the world. It's as an organization and those who support us to make sure that that dream, that, you know, really the United States is the only country with a dream, if you think about it, right? And so for the work that remains, the fact is that that's there and it's upon all of us to make sure we keep that alive. And so that, the, the community aspect really was tangible, in that moment for me. And so, you know, again, what continues to motivate me day to day to keep here, keep coming into Freedom House and doing what I do, right? Because people also believe what I get to experience every day. Well, you know, I think that that's one of the things that you got to love about Detroit, because even in hard times, and I know that some of that funding came from all over, but yep. even in hard times, we dig deep. You know, we dig deep, and especially when people understand the importance of something to the community, like what Freedom House is doing, people get it. Yes. I mean, and people get it. And I mean, and when you hear, if there are areas where you hear, you know, people with outcry of, of this xenophobia and all that, you know, when you saw that, you know, how many, when we have this large uh, Iraqi community, when you heard that ICE was in that area, I've had people who let me know when ICE is in an area and that you let people know so that they're safe. So people are, are open and want to find it. I think that that's a testimony to the importance of Freedom House and its messaging and letting people know, and then to, to humans. I mean, I mean we, are, we are better than those who are supposed to be representing our government, the government. Let's say the government. How's that? One of the things that we talked about was, and introducing you, was you're learning about the Rwandan genocide. I think that most people um, who saw that movie, Hotel Rwanda, were like, you know, just shocked and appalled. Um, I know that I went on and, I mean, I saw the movie, but I also read books. Like, I know that I read this one that was, what was it called? Oh, we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. Yes, great book. And, I know. And uh, what is the other one? Um, there, there's Left one to by, tell. yes, by Immaculate Illibagiza. Mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I read these and people like, oh, well, you shouldn't read that. And I said, no, you need to read it. And it also talks about what colonialism has set up and caused and all these things that are happening in other areas that, you know, we tend to not want to look at or go like, oh, it's just so uh, horrible that they are doing it to them. And it's like, no, it's a system that is due, that has set this in motion. Have you ever been to Africa? I've not, not yet, but I'll tell you, mm-hmm. one, one day, obviously, one day I'm going to go and I'm going to have the best time and I'm going to need like a year off of work because mm-hmm. everybody who comes to Freedom House, um, you know, unfortunately for, for the majority of them, um, you know, it's usually at least a year until they're able to earn an income to support themselves. And so, uh, and then when they do get a job, it's a minimum wage, generally speaking, minimum wage job. And, you know, so there's not a lot they can do to say thank you. Right, but what they always say is, when you go to Africa one day, if you go to Rwanda, if you go to Uganda, to the Congo, wherever, let me know, and I'm going to call this person or this person, and you're going to stay with them, and they're going to show you my community where I grew up, and they're going to treat you good and, and give you an authentic experience. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when that when that does happen, I, I can only imagine the experience that I'm going to have because, again, I think it's going to be, like they say, an authentic experience. Right, it's going to be 
you know, I'm going to live in, in the homes of people who've come through Freedom House. And so I, I can't think of a better way to experience um, another place, regardless of, any, of where, right? That's one of the things that, that in, when I've talked to people who are from um, various places, is that to talk, that love, even though these horrible things are happening, that love of their homeland and wanting you to see mm-hmm. how it is. Absolutely. So, Yes, that's exactly it. You know, and um, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, when we when we Freedom House and we do outreach into various communities and you know students and professionals and what have you, um, some of the questions that we get about Africa, you know, and like as if Africa were continent or excuse me, were country, right? Mm-hmm. And in terms of um, living styles, do people live in trees? Do they cook around the fire? Mm-hmm. And so I think there are many misconceptions, right, based on the media, right, and, and both in terms of movies and then, you know, the journalistic media, et cetera, that help to perpetuate this. And people don't, rec- don't recognize or um, realize that, you know, there's developed cities, much like Detroit, in countries all throughout Africa. And so, um, you know, that's very much a part of, you know, an indirect part of our outreach in terms of our awareness raising, that education piece. And then also, you know, letting people know, when again, when we do outreach, um, you know, we don't gloss over or shy away from the fact that 98% of people who come through our doors are survivors of torture. Um, and I use survivors intentionally, not victims, because the fact that they made it to, out of their country to into the United States, to our doors and cross that threshold, they're a survivor. And so we don't shy away from that. But again, in, in, in our plea to asking the community for support, it's not a support us because we're, we're, we're providing services to these poor victims of torture who don't have the means to support themselves and are coming from places where they were living in trees and don't know how to speak English and all of these things, right? Um, the the torture piece is certainly a component, but in addition to talking about the survivor of torture and, and the also the rich diversity of cultures and languages and stuff that come through the door, there's also this piece that gets glossed over again, pulling all of this together, in that there's this immense potential, untapped potential, um, of uh, you know, rich talents and skills and professions and experiences that can contribute to making our community a better place for all of us, right? And so, again, I think that that's part of that, that misconception of people who come here and how we tend to generalize who these individuals are, right? And so, in many ways, our work at Freedom House goes beyond the service provision piece. So, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but I mean, again, recognizing that we don't live single issue or single identity lives. I believe, you know, Audre Lorde, it's a reference to some quote, paraphrasing her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, it's very much a part of who we are as an organization and what we aim to do. Now, you know, one of the conversations that you and I had before we came on the air, and I think that, and I want you to, to explain it to people, because right now we are living in some horribly xenophobic, times and freedom house talks about what's on that statue of liberty people providing safety for those yearning to breathe free but if you listen to the media and the spin doctors it's like 
these people are just coming over here to take our jobs. They're all illegal. Um, and we should just, like, hurt them all up. I mean, and you hear people who say, well, you know, I don't see why they're upset. They, they herded them all up, and, and they want to send them back. And I've even heard people who almost talk like disbelief that, oh, they're asking for asylum. That's just like some kind of trick just to stay here. Would you explain? Absolutely. And you're going to have to ask me to stop talking because you're going to get me going. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the first thing that I always like to say is, um, and I know you, weren't, you were using this to make a point, is that no human being can be illegal. Right, as far as we know, Thank planet you. Earth is the only place where humans live. And so how can we be legal on our own planet? Um, and so recognizing that as point one, and again, separating the perhaps illegal movement, right, the migration piece, the act might be illegal, right, but the person itself is not. And so with that in mind, I think the second piece is, again, the media, right, we tend to group people into these massive categories as if they're all the one and they don't have individual stories and and identities in addition to immigration statuses. And so the media usually says illegal immigrants. We talked about the illegal part. But again, within immigrants, right, when we talk about immigration reform, we're not just talking about you know, those quote-unquote Mexicans crossing the border to steal our jobs and our tax dollars, right? Of course, we're talking about border security in the southern border. We're also talking about the northern border, right? Right here in Detroit, Mm -hmm. the largest international commercial crossing in the country. Um, You know, we're talking about detention reform. We're talking about refugee resettlement system. We're talking about asylum seekers, unaccompanied minors, right? There's all these different populations that fall under that title. But specifically, coming down, getting more specific, um, the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker is small, but crucial when it comes to um, access to supportive services and, you know, ultimately um, how an individual, how likely an individual is to be successful. Um, United States, when we typically use the term refugee, we're talking about resettled refugees. And so these are individuals, again, I'm going to gloss over this for the sake of time, um, is an individual who, let's say, flees Uganda and goes to bordering country Kenya and registers with the UN Refugee Agency in, in a refugee camp. And they go through this initial application process to prove that they meet the definition, which I'll outline for you in a moment, um, that they meet this definition. Um, there's health screenings and security checks, et cetera, et cetera. And once all of that happens, they're then referred to a country that is currently accepting refugees. So has, you know, part of the quota, right, that exists for each country. It's not reached the, um, uh, uh, what am I saying, the cap yet. And so that being said, somebody can't say, oh, I want to go to the United States, I want to go to China. It's whoever's accepting, unless you're able to demonstrate, of course, that you have a family tie. And so in the case of the United States, you know, again, the application would then be, you know, the case file, if you will, will be referred to the United States, and that whole process will start over again. So, again, the application process, you know, the paper forms, of course, the interviews, biometrics, um, extensive, exhaustive vetting and security checks, you know, through the State Department, FBI, CIA, Defense Department, National Counterterrorism Agency, and then working with our international partners and allies and their security systems, again, to go through all of these checks to make sure that they don't pose a risk to the country. And so once all of that happens, again, with the health screenings and such, the individual is then 
um, you know, they pass, they're given refugee status, and they're able to be resettled in another country. And so they're given a loan for airfare, fly into the United States, and I say loan because they have to pay the cost of that airfare back once they earn an income. Um, and when they come into the United States, they come in with that protected designated status as a refugee, which entitles them to their Social Security number, they're eligible for, eligible for a state ID or driver's license, and as it stands right now, not sure what the future holds with this administration, but as it stands now, entitled to eight months of supportive services from the Department of Health and Human Services. So that would be food assistance, cash assistance, and Medicaid. In addition to when they arrive, a refugee resettlement agency has furnished an apartment for them and will work with them for generally 90 days to help them be self-sufficient. So that would include referrals for English classes, employment training, you know, any health or mental health referrals, etc. And so a resettled refugee or just a refugee as it is in U.S. terminology um, again, as somebody who gets that status prior to arrival and then comes to the U.S. with access to services able to start their life. An asylum seeker is different. But before I go on, I want to, again, define who it is that we're talking about. So okay. these, these are individuals who are outside their country of origin and are unable or unwilling to avail themselves to their country for protection due to a well-founded history or fear of future persecution that is inflicted upon them by their own government or another group or entity that the government cannot or will not control. And that persecution is for one or in some instances multiple of five very specific reasons. So it can be because of your race or ethnicity, your nationality, your political opinion, your religious affiliation, or your membership within a particular social group, which lay people's terms, I'm not a lawyer, right, is kind of a catch-all category. So these mm -hmm. are individuals who are fleeing persecution because of um, perhaps their HIV-AIDS status, if it's criminalized in their country, because of their profession, because of um, their tribal status. So going back to the Rwandan genocide, right, Hutu, Tutsi, and Twa, while the genocide itself is over, the effects of that are still felt today and, and still ongoing. And so people can flee because of their tribe in some situations. Um, it can be because of domestic violence in some cases, FGM, or increasingly um, your membership within the LGBT community. And so all that being said, it's a very specific set of criteria that you have to demonstrate that you meet. And so bringing it back to an asylum seeker, um, generally speaking, asylum seekers are very well educated and were professionals in their home country. And putting those two together, one could assume that you would your likelihood of having access to resources is greater than one who is not educated or a professional, right? And so essentially what that means is for our residents, these are individuals who in their home country, um, you know, they're more likely to be able to go through the visa application process at the U.S. Embassy in their country, apply for that visa, which is not only time-consuming but costly, be issued that visa, can afford to buy the plane ticket, so they fly into the United States through port of entry, go through inspection on this valid visa. They're admitted to the country, and then in the case of Freedom House, right, they're going to seek out our assistance. And so um, the main difference between a resettled refugee and an asylum seeker is that an asylum seeker is seeking that protection, that designated status on our soil, as opposed to prior to arrival. And then the other main difference is 
again, that a asylum seeker is not entitled to any state or federal assistance until he or she is granted asylum. And so another thing, and then I'm going to come up for air, asylum seeker, um, generally speaking, at Freedom House, and I'm sure you might ask me more questions in a bit, um, generally you're going to expect, one of our, our residents can expect to wait between three and five years before a case is issued on their, or a decision is issued on their case. And so for three to five years, they're not entitled to any state or federal assistance, whereas a resettled refugee, when they first arrive, they've got the eight months of support, right? And so, of course, eight months, nobody can say, I mean, I would hope nobody can say when you're starting from scratch with nothing, eight months is, is enough support, but that's another discussion. Um, but again, you know, an asylum seeker is, is generally at a greater disadvantage because of this long period of time where they don't have access to these services, which ultimately is important why Freedom House is here, to help for the first, you know, year, two, year and a half, get the, submit the legal application, secure their work authorization, and then learn the necessary skills and, and build upon their skills so that way they can exit with ability to work and um, you know, because they speak English, they've stabilized their health, and they're able to exit into into stable housing and, and so be able to support themselves, knowing that they don't have access to other services. Well, I mean, and that's really important because I don't think that people need to understand that clearly, and there's not like uh, a place where you can go and find it and get that, that explanation. Um, I really appreciate that. We're going to take a quick break because... We've opened this door, and I want to continue to go through there. So um, if you're just joining us, you are listening to my guest, TJ Rogers. And uh, we're talking on a number of issues, but primarily about asylum seekers. And we're going to get back with that in just a very few moments. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. We're back, TJ. You know, I work with a group out of Chicago, and um, they do a conference uh, once a year. And for many years, they would always welcome uh, a group from various countries in Africa to sort of talk about the, the condition of LGBTQ people in Uganda, Kenya, South Africa. And... Um, a couple of years ago, there was a young man there who was basically couch surfing, um, doing whatever odd jobs he could get paid under the table. And his situation was like what you're talking about. He said in his home country, how he had been a professional, he had done this and that, but he, was, he knew they were closing in on finding out that he was gay. 
So he bought a ticket, and he came to the United States, and he was working with a church group in, um, out in the Chicago area who was helping him work on getting asylum. And, I mean, it was, it was almost not only eye-opening but heartbreaking to hear. It's like, you know, how this was his life. He, loved his, his, he talked about how he loved his mother, and his mother was living in fear, and, you know, and how his family couldn't, he was hoping that no one would, would say that his family knew that he had been gay. And so he had to, like, when he left, he had to, like, stop communicating with his family that he had gone from having a, a great job and, and a life to where here, you know, not knowing what tomorrow would bring. But he was yearning to breathe free. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was just like, was it, and this year, in 2017, that usually a university or something would sponsor these people, to, these people from Africa to come. This year they went, had to go through so many hoops because of this new administration and it's like well how do we know that they're not going they're going to come back you know and and so i hear what you're saying and i mean and and i think that if someone saw someone i mean this guy was not only afraid for his life but afraid for his family i mean and to imagine that you know he couldn't call his mother it, it makes me want to cry. You know, I know that that's the truth, but, you know, hearing you say it again is a sobering reminder that we as a, a race, a human race, have a lot of work to do. Um, and, again, his his story is far too common. It's a he, I think you said, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Far too common. And I think, you know, there's a lot of issues at play here. I think, one, to specifically address the LGBT issue, that is an additional... Um, struggle, challenge, barrier that a, an LGBT asylum seeker has that a, a heterosexual asylum seeker has in that, one, generally speaking, if homosexuality is criminalized in your home country, it generally also criminalizes those who know about your sexual orientation or gender identity and don't report it. And so in many cases, individuals will make that difficult decision of leaving their family because they love their family and they don't want to put their family at risk. And so that's the issue when you're in the country, but then fast forward to once you've been, if you're fortunate enough to get in the U.S. to seek asylum, you have to be able to to gather and secure evidence from back home to support your asylum application because, remember, the burden of proof is placed upon the claimant. And so it's not enough to say, I was persecuted or I have fear of future because this is what's going on in my country. Um, And so you have to be able to, one, communicate with people back home in such a way that doesn't put individuals at risk, right? And so if if you were a target, you can't just call up your your parents or your partner or, or your best friend and say, hey, I need you to send me X, Y, and Z for my application. Because if they were looking for you, they're likely still monitoring the, the communications and movements, et cetera, of people that you are likely to associate with or contact. And so you have to go in this very roundabout, strategic um, you know, underground sort of way to get this this list of desired evidence to the individuals who can help secure it for you. And so, again, you have to think about their safety. 
The second thing is the challenging that is a challenge for the LGBT community in terms of seeking asylum is, you know, I think about, you know, it would be no different, I presume, than you or I, right? How do we prove that we're gay? Mm. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and particularly, um, again, while, while the United States relatively is significantly better than other countries, we still have work to do. And point two, I think there's still this, um, I don't think anybody, or I would hope nobody would challenge that this um, heteronormative um, discourse still far, is, is significantly louder than, than our lived reality as members of the LGBT community. And so it's not uncommon when an individual goes for their asylum interview for the asylum officer to ask these invasive questions in terms of your sexual practices and preferences and they'll ask for, you know, photo or video evidence and, and things of that nature. And so, one, I think that that is incredibly inhumane and, you know, just appalling that that would be the case. But then even a step further, right, think logically, right? If you're in a country that criminalizes who you are, you're not going to have much evidence unless you were an activist like Frank Mugisha, for example, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but mm-hmm. if you don't have that sort of um, clout, if I can use that term, and therefore the international protection that comes with that, right, if you're just a, an average Joe, if you will, um, and you don't have that sort of notoriety, you are very much living in the underground world, in the closet, hiding your identity. And so when you go for your interview, it's hard to secure evidence to prove that you're gay when you were having to hide it. Right, so this, um, a colleague of mine, Shaban, um, she's a fellow steering committee member for LGBT Freedom and Asylum Network. She was just interviewed in an article on Slate, and she uses um, uh, used this, this saying that visibility is a double-edged sword. And I can't agree with her more, right? You need the visibility to prove who, that you are who you say you are to be offered the protection. But at the same point, the visibility is that which is causing you to have to flee and ask for the protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's just like how how we were saying earlier how no one is illegal. I mean, to be human, I mean, it's not illegal. But right. to be human, I mean, that's who we are. Right. And to have someone question you, you have to, you know, and to mm-hmm. be gay. We know being gay is a human condition. We're right. human. Yep. And to have invasive questions, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's just like, Mind-blowing. Yes. yes, absolutely. And and the other thing to keep in mind that is, of course, not only applicable to the LGBT asylum seeker, but to anybody who, who's fleeing um, and seeking safety in our country is, again, put yourself in their shoes, right? So, I mean, I think about myself, right? So I've, um, I've got a family here that loves me and supports me. I've got a close circle of friends. Um, I have an education, I have a professional career and these networks that I'm affiliated with. I've got my apartment. Um, you know, I, I've got all of these things that comprise me and make me who I am and make me feel whole and, and like I'm living a, a well above high quality life, right? I'm, I'm incredibly grateful and privileged to have all of these things. And so to imagine myself living in, in a place where... Um, a very real part, not the only, but a very real part of who I am is criminalized and I'm not able to be that. And and things get so bad where I have to flee into the unknown, right? And I have to leave all of that behind that I just laid out for you when the best option is to flee into the unknown. And, And again, fleeing to a place that nowadays, the United States, a country where elected officials 
um, not all of them, but elected officials are saying, you're not welcome here, you're a terrorist, you're this, that, and the other. Um, you know, imagine the courage that that takes, right? The courage, one, to, to live your truth in your home country and experience the persecution, and then the courage to say, despite all of that, I can't be myself, my life is at risk, my, my degree won't mean anything when I get to the United States, my professional experience won't carry much weight when I get to the United States, I won't have the support of my family, I'm going to be all alone and not know anybody, I'm not going to speak the language, perhaps my religion isn't the predominant religion, I'm going to leave all of that behind and go somewhere where I don't know if I'm going to be sleeping on the street, if I'm going to be exploited further, if the government is, is going to even let me into the country, um, if I'm going to find people to support me and help walk me through this process, in addition to, again, having this administration that is very vocal about saying, we don't want you here, buy America, made in America, all of these sorts of things, which nobody's going to say, right, making things in America is bad. But I think an important misconception about people who are, you know, in terms of this Made in America movement, if you will, that, that the administration is um, starting to put into place, right? I don't know anybody in the immigration arena who says we shouldn't be adding to our sector, hiring Americans, buying American, ex manufacturing American. No, nobody in, in, in my field is saying those things in, in my circles. It's a, it doesn't have to, it's painted as an either-or issue, right? And so, and I think it's a tactic of, of people who, don't hold the beliefs I do, right, to paint us as if we are opposed to, you know, what they're pushing, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm very much, right, yeah, we should. Let's employ our own, et cetera, et cetera, but that doesn't mean we exclude a whole sector of people who have the skills and the talents to create businesses, employ local citizens, and add to the fabric of our community and, and strengthen our economy. And so, again, when you think about the asylum seeker or, or anybody who's fleeing persecution, imagine the courage that that takes. Mm -hmm. I, I, because, I, you know, that's one of the things that that fellow said, like, it wasn't like he could pack like he was going away. It was like a carry-on bag with yep. what he could take. Exactly. Because if it looked like you were packing too hard to go someplace, that raises flags. So it's like, how do you choose? I mean, really, I mean, if you stop and you think, tomorrow I have to go, how do you choose mm -hmm. what you take and, you know, and, and, and leave behind and, like I said, not even knowing what you're going to get? And I guess the other thing, like, one of the other things that I've often found that's interesting that, that people don't talk about is that, you know, we talk about what the government is doing, but many in many of these countries where LGBTQ people are being persecuted, it's led by religious-type people who are being trained here yes. or supported by here. So it's almost like a double-edged sword because... Not only do you hear this government talking that way, but you see this rise of this religious right, which you know is funding and training those who would persecute and even kill you. Right. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I won't go into the details of it, but um, Scott Lively, he was um, sued by SMUG, Section Minorities Uganda, mm -hmm. um, under the Alien Tort Statute, which, again, I'm not a lawyer, I think dumbing it down to lay people's terms, my terms, essentially allows um, international um, victims in this case to sue or, or bring to court individuals who are violating their rights and putting their lives at risk. And so, granted, just um, within the last month or two, if I recall the timeline, um, the case was unsuccessful, but it went 
it actually made it to court. And so they submitted the the um, the case, and that you know it had to go through this process to determine you know the merits, whether or not it was worthy of being heard. It passed that hurdle. They went through the first phase. Um, it was in um, Boston, if I recall. And so you know it made it all the way to the end. It just wasn't the outcome that was sought after. But in the um, uh, narrative of of the case decision, it did underscore reference what they brought to brought to light. Right, and so while it wasn't a success overall, it did raise red flags and bring bring the issue to light. And so, you know, again, essentially they were suing this gentleman for exporting hate to Uganda, mm-hmm. right? And again, that's exactly what we're talking about. You know, you you Google, um, um, if you you know you Google you know any of the major Ugandan activists, David Cato, who perished a few I shouldn't say perished, he was murdered a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Frank Mugisha, Pepe, et cetera, these individuals, they'll, they'll show you the research that says, you know, until this, this export of hate became the norm, um, there was acceptance, right? Because there was no, oh, you're gay, you're straight. It was just, like you said, like you said earlier, right, the human condition, we love. We're attracted to who we are. We have sex with who we want, et cetera. Right, and then when when this export came into play, we then started to to label people and put them into categories, which led to where we are today. Oh, it's it's often because I mean, in many indigenous people, I mean, we know that in the Native American community, there are people who were too spirited. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the people um, who I'd met in Chicago talked about there had often been people in their community who were gay and. Prior to all of this, you know, it was just like often they were the revered, respected person. But now everyone was, was, you know, hiding. When you met Frank Mugisha, I mean, I mean, I remember being there and it was just like how courageous. Like you said, there is a certain amount of notoriety Mm -hmm. that protects, provides some protection. But at the same point, I mean, to step into that spotlight, I mean, that is just like so beyond courageous i agree it's like superhuman right mm-hmm. um i i've got a picture of, of he and i beside my desk i'm in fact looking at it now as we're talking about it i i, I yeah I, I can't put into words what it was like on a personal level right for me to meet him um mm-hmm. again embracing my identity and again the the privilege that also comes with that because i'm an american i'm a white american right and just imagining what it's like to live in a, a country that criminalizes who you are, yet having the courage every day to wake up and, and say, regardless of what you say, this is who I am, and I'm going to fight not only for my rights in my life, but for people like me, for the Kuchu community. Um, you know, and a little side note for a moment, um, every, what is it, every December, um, there's an organization, Outright International, and they have a summit in New York City, Out Summit. And so, I don't know if you're familiar with Outright International, but it's essentially an organization that um, organizes and advocates for the rights and respect of the rights of LGBTQ persons around the globe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I've gone the last two years and, you know, I've had the privilege of meeting these incredible activists from countries around the globe who are doing this work every day. And so, again, to think about these individuals who, until the conference, I didn't know, right? And so, again, as, as we said, Frank... Um, to his advantage, has this sort of notoriety, which does give him um, a, a sort of veil of protection. 
um, not completely. He was arrested a few months ago, um, so it's not, you know, fail-safe, but does give him this protection that a lot of these activists don't have. And so, again, I think it, 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 it's a call to action for us as Americans to really look at our foreign policy, right, in terms of not only our, the, the political policies, right, but our money. Where's the money going? Um, something that was said at this past past year's conference by an activist from Belize that really struck with me, and I say all the time now, um, talking about the, the administration's proposed budget and funding cuts to USAID and PEPFAR and all of these programs. And this woman said, when the United States sneezes, the Caribbean catches a cold. Hmm. And I thought that that was so powerful, that analogy, and it was really put in a way that I think people who might not be politically engaged or, you know, have an internationally thinking mind, right, um, in, in a way that people can understand, right? Our policies do not only affect us inside the borders of the United States. They extend and reverberate around the globe. And so by cutting funding to these programs, individuals who are really putting their lives on the line every day for, for their life and their rights and others like them, um, or not even others like them, just for others because they're human beings, right? Um, how much more difficult we have and, and are going to continue to make lives for them if, if we as, as American citizens aren't engaged in staying up to date with what's going on. Well, you know, um, I've seen, you know, like, and then I've talked to different people, and like I know now many who are in the social justice community, and especially what especially makes me feel good is many who are in the LGBTQ are, are linking mm-hmm. these things about not only protecting our rights, but then how it, it links in. I think of uh, people like J. Bob Alota, who's with the Australia Foundation, who is all over the place and brings back things that she's seen in different countries and showing ways that we can support each other. I just talked to a woman uh, out of California who was, who was really linking not only how the, we need to think about the food justice meeting, uh, movement, but also how often where the things that we are getting are from these countries where people are being persecuted and, and what price are we, we really paying? We are not thinking about that price, but what price are they paying for what we take for granted? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It certainly requires a um, deeper look at it, right, not just a, a gloss over um, and assuming that, you know, again, that, that quote I referenced earlier, I just Googled it to make sure I'm, I'm saying it correctly. Audrey <laughs> Lord, there's no thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not mm-hmm. live single-issue lives. And I think, again, that that's perfect because, again, you know, as you said in the introduction, talking about people living at intersections of, the, of their identity. Um, and I think that, again, plays direct connection to the social justice issues, right? We can't look at these issues in silos because the reality is, as we're saying, they all affect and play into one another. Mm-hmm. When you, like you were talking about the outright uh, international and going to that, and I see that you're involved with the UNHCR and all these other things, are you starting, but you have an international relationship with smug, but are you starting when you go and you're talking to them, are you starting to hear people really talk more about a global community and how do we acknowledge the humanity of everyone? Yes, I think um, absolutely. Um, Particularly, I think, you know, I think the, the, 
if I hate to even say this, but I think the silver lining of the results of, of our recent election is that people are starting to realize the interconnectedness of um, communities, of countries, and of issues. And so, again, at again at that um, the summit that I was in back in December, absolutely. And so, while the the focus is primarily what can um, activists in different countries do to support each other, um, you know, I myself, when I go to these conferences, the questions I always ask are right. Of course, what what can I do in, in my circles to support you? But what can I do um, politically, right? So what are the sorts of, where are the funding issues, right? Because, I, I mean, I don't know everything, right? People assume that I know more than I know, and that's not the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, asking them directly, asking people on the front lines, what is it that I can do? And not making the assumption that, okay, well, you know, I, I'm a, a white American. We've got all the money. We've got all the privilege. I know what's best for you. And so a really kind of grassroots level movement in speaking directly to the people on the front lines to hear what their needs are, what their concerns are, what we can do to support them, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that, that that's absolutely um, the direction that you know, I, I see in my circles, things moving towards. But again, I think for the acknowledgement or what I'm, what I'm hoping is, is a greater acknowledgement of this reality, I think it just got a whole lot more challenging, you know, at the same point while we've realized it because of this administration, now that we're realizing it, it's going to be more difficult to make it a reality because of policies that are being put in place in the states. And so we've really got to make sure that our policies and um, laws and such don't restrict our ability to do what we would do if they weren't in place, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, like I think too, like I said, it's, it's a, a challenge. You know how they say a challenge can be an opportunity. Right. And it's a, a, a harder opportunity. I mean, we have to work hard to do this, but it isn't a time because I think that I was telling somebody the story about like after the, the Women's March, I went to an event and um, where there was everybody was commiserating about how horrible it was. A woman outed herself saying that she had voted for Trump on one issue, um, which was abortion. And she said, but she then began to recognize that, you know, she really needed to look broader. And also she was, she said that people in her family, she recognized that when he was talking about, you know, sending ice in and getting them, that that could be some of her family members. Mm -hmm. All of her family members weren't, you know, documented. And there was that moment where some people wanted to just like, you know, like, well, run her out of the room. But then it gave an opportunity to have, a conversation about this and like you said look at it the bigger picture but then how do we act locally and part of acting locally is through that education and engaging with our neighbors and engaging with our community I think um, again you're gonna I'll, I keep saying privilege 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 but I think that this like with that example you just said right she thought about the she was voted on the abortion issue, essentially, mm-hmm. and realized with the ICE roundups, um, which ICE is not terming a roundup. I was just at a meeting today, and they keep saying that, but that's another discussion. Uh, you know, recognizing that that could be her or her family. And so what I think that this, again, this election has caused us to do is recognize that the privilege that once kept us safe, you know, in our various identities, depending on what that may be, um, I don't, 
unless you're a rich, old, white Christian man, I don't think that the privilege that we might have once not known we had or acknowledged, cared to acknowledge we had, is now under threat. It looks like, I mean, you have, it sounds like that you have found something that, I mean, you're not doing public relations, but you are. You're doing a whole lot more than that. You've really, you were recognized by Pride Source. And I'm looking at, like, you know, the UNHCR in Washington, um, Steering Committee of LGBT Freedom and Asylum Network, the Mary Turner Center for Advocacy, a member of Amnesty International. You have spread your wings and sort of like this has become more than just a job. This is is a big part of who and and what you are. Yes, it has. I am. You know, it, I have to be honest with you and say, hearing all of that stuff way back an hour ago when you were introducing me, I was like, oh, gosh, this is embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I also do have to take a step back and say, yeah, you know, I'm proud of myself and what I've done. You know, I, I, don't, I have to say I don't take enough time to do that, and I think that, you know, I, I want to do it in a way that's healthy because I don't want my head to get big because I doubt myself all the time. But also giving credit where credit's due, and that's a struggle that I have. Um, and so I think absolutely, I think moving to Detroit, specifically what we're talking about, was one of the best decisions I could have could have made, and I didn't know it at the time. Um, because, again, I really found my niche in terms of mm-hmm. what my passion is. And by finding my passion, it also helps me to more fully own my identity and, again, acknowledge the intersectionality of, of that and how... My inter- how my identity intersects with other identities. And, again, really kind of, you know, when I was in college and growing up, I had this, I, now, you know, hindsight, I say, I had this naive belief that, you know, we're all human family. And I still mm-hmm. do. But, you know, having come to Freedom House, um, it's been an effort. It's been a lived reality, right? Mm-hmm. It's been affirmed. And so it, it makes my passion that much um, more passionate, that much more, that much stronger and greater, and um, really is what what fuels me, what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, and so I'm I'm incredibly grateful um, for all the opportunities that I had. And you know, I also have to take a second to acknowledge um, Deb, my director, right, and her believing in me and supporting me and and being a mentor to me. In addition to being my supervisor, um, the opportunities that I've had at Freedom House because she believed in me helped me to spread my wings and realize the potential that I have to to affect change, to play a role in affecting change. It's been quite a journey. And Mm -hmm. the other thing I'm going to say, since I'm talking about it, if you don't mind, is self-care. I have learned in the last six years the importance of self-care. been underscored in this entire conversation. The work that remains is immense and exhausting and overwhelming and feels unwinnable. Um, every day of my life, <laughs> but mm-hmm. in, in recognizing that, you know, hey, every day I wake up, that's number one, I wake up. Um, and number two, I go to work at an organization who, in my mind, is the epitome of America, right, when you think about our roots and, and who we are as mm-hmm. a country and, and what we stand for. Again, standing shoulder to shoulder with, with individuals, with our residents, people who, when I was in college, um, as, as the president of our Amnesty International chapter and doing all this other stuff, doing letter writing and petitioning for individuals who were on the front lines, who were jailed, detained, beaten, etc., 
um, and now, again, every day I get to come to work and stand shoulder to shoulder with people who um, were doing that on the front lines and who were persecuted for their identity, for, for being gay, myself being gay, right, is um, I couldn't ask for a better experience, for mm-hmm. a better dose of reality. Every day I come to work and there's always work to be done and I never feel like I'm caught up. I, I'm always behind. I think, one, recognizing and admitting that I'm always going to be behind because there's always going to be work to mm-hmm. be done because things, uh, has, just the acknowledgement of that has been an asset, right, to me, and then recognizing that I can only do so much, right? If I don't take care of myself, I'm not going to be able to give my best to Freedom House and the people who come through our doors and the people who believe in us and the people who believe in the America I believe in. And so it's been a long time for me not to feel guilty to say, you know, after eight and a half hours, I'm going home. But we're going to take our second break. Uh, You're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown, and we will be back in just a very few moments. Our guest today is T.J. Rogers. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Let me I tell you my Pablo Davis um, story. When we were doing Detroit Summer and we would bring kids in from all over and we were in southwest Detroit and someone had said, here's a wall, do a mural. And the kids were, like, really struggling. And this older gentleman walked up. He stayed, and he helped them work on it. And then after a while, they got to know him. And his was Pablo Davis, and he talked about having worked with Diego Rivera on the mural. And I ran into one of those kids um, when Grace Boggs died, who's now an adult. He talked about what that meant to have someone from who like at first he, and in fact, he wasn't Latino, he wasn't black, but he was in this neighborhood, and he said at first, you know, what am I doing in this neighborhood? What have I gotten in it? And here, not only did he have an interaction with someone from another culture, but someone who shared something that they knew, and it inspired him. In your work, do you hope will inspire young people to, Get beyond these borders. Get beyond thinking some people are illegal and recognize the humanity in all of us, even when we don't speak the same language and we don't come from the same place of oh the world. That's, that's a loaded question. Um, and it's a loaded question. I have a lot of thoughts, but at the same point, I'm speechless. What I, what I hope would inspire people, so I'm going to say what I would encourage individuals to do in hopes that would inspire them, um, is to get involved in whatever you're passionate about. And if you don't know what you're passionate about, take a stab at various things um, because there's two things. Well, there's two things I want to say. This is part one. Part one is find out what you're passionate about because that's what's going to get you out of bed in the morning and don't do something solely based on money. Because money, I mean, while I would love to have a little more money, don't get me wrong, it's it's not going it, to, that itself will not make me happy. And so, because the reality is, even, let's say you, you do go after money, you become, um, I don't want to say become a lawyer, because not all lawyers make money. 
um, a whole lot of money. <laughs> you could work in the mm-hmm. nonprofit world. Uh, but let, let's say you are a lawyer for a corporation, right? And, and you're feeling um, like you're enjoying the paycheck, but you're feeling unfulfilled because your passion, which you didn't follow, was working with homeless youth. You had a volunteer experience in school when you were in college. What you could then turn around and do is volunteer your profession, right? People might not always have the money to give. They might not have the time. Um, they might not have the skill, but generally people have one of those three things, right? You've either got the time, the money, or, or the skill. And so, you know, when I, when I talk to a group of medical students, every year I go talk to a group of Wayne State medical students about Freedom House, and then they come and volunteer throughout the, the academic year. And I tell them, um, you know, I'm not asking all of you to give us all your money, even though I hope when you're a big, rich doctor, you do give us some of your money. You know, our residents don't qualify for health insurance until they get their asylum or they get an employer that offers them insurance. Not, and again, 98% of our residents are survivors of torture. And so what you can do as a, a medical professional, as a doctor, is see some of our residents pro bono. Right, so that, that's a way to give back, recognizing that some people might not want to be in the nonprofit world due to lack of, of uh, compensation, <laughs> but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can't give back. So find what you're passionate about and in some way bring that to fruition. But then in my own experience, what I would say is volunteer. Um, that might not be something you enjoy doing, getting up early on a Sunday morning or going after school or what have you, but get involved and meet people from different walks of life. Um, I was raised growing up volunteering um, for Special Olympics back in Buffalo, and I did that for 17 years. And so that was really instrumental in um, many things in my life, but I, I won't go off on a tangent. Um, but I also volunteered in homeless shelters. I got to travel. I went to New York City and volunteered at a homeless shelter, homeless shelters for two weeks. And so that experience alone, if I had to trace back um, what led me to Freedom House, like a specific moment. I would say it was my first trip to New York City volunteering in homeless shelters alongside individuals who were experiencing homelessness. And so because of that, you know, the allure for me was, oh, I get to go to New York City, right? And I didn't realize that, that um, you know, meeting these individuals and having conversation Right, I wasn't going to provide a service or provide a referral or give people things. I was simply going to have conversation. And, you know, when you think about how really revolutionary that is because we as a society tend to further ostracize and deprive homeless and individuals experiencing homelessness of their dignity by not even saying hello when we pass them on the street, right? That New York City from that experience went back to Buffalo and because of that experience, wanting to do the same thing in Buffalo. I wound up volunteering at a refugee shelter in Buffalo, and then that's where I realized that this population, anything in the immigration field is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so had I not volunteered, I wouldn't have found out what that was. Um, I wouldn't have known that this was my passion if I hadn't outside of, been involved outside of the classroom. Often you don't know what's going to lead you to the path, but if you, you follow that thread back, mm-hmm. there it was. And so take opportunities. Seize the opportunities that you have, right? And again, privilege, right? I had the privilege of being able to, I say afford, get loans so I could go to school, right? But then I had the other privilege of being able to take a week off in the wintertime, not work like my parents would have preferred I do, to go to New York City and volunteer, Right, And so 
again, it, the privilege that I had to do that, I recognize not everybody has, but if you've got the privilege, that is one situation where you should use it, right? Because mm-hmm. I used it. It led me to an opportunity that, you know, again, following that thread is what led me to Freedom House. And so that, that's the way privilege can be a good thing. It gives you the opportunities, but then can land you in a position where you use that, that privilege to open up doors of opportunities for other people who, because of these, these unjust systems, they don't have access to. Yeah, that's a kind of a lot of random thoughts. It's a lot about what intersectionality is about. And it's interesting how that now, just now, we went back to how if you had not been there or had that opportunity and done these things, it would not have led you on this path, you mm-hmm. know. As you look back and, and you think about the work that you're, you're going to do in the future, and as I look at some of the things that you're involved with, like the Mary Turner Center, all of these, these other things, and you're sitting in spaces where all kinds of social justice issues are going to come up and you're going to be holding the place not only for your LGBTQ space that is you and also that is also part of your work, but for asylum seekers from all walks of life. How do you feel that your intersectionality is going to impact this future work? Oh, I hope for the better in the sense that I'm, you know, one of my goals is working with Freedom Houses to really, and we've made progress in the past three years, but really work to make Freedom House um, a place where individuals who are of the LGBT community, be American or um, foreign-born, right, know that this is a safe place, right? So if you're somebody who's, who's fleeing the persecution, you know that you can come here because it's a safe place. You can get the services you need. We have LGBT-focused programming. On the flip side, if you are of the LGBT community, you say, I want to go volunteer at Freedom House because I know there are people who are fleeing countries where they're criminalized for who they are, and I know what it's like to be scapegoated because of my sexual orientation or my gender identity. I also hope that this, this, you know, again, this, this bridge is built between the two, and so, you know, it goes hand-in-hand. Hand. People can go both ways. We LGBT, American LGBT individuals, we know what it's like, right, to be persecuted and our right, not as, as severe, right, but we know what it's right to, to not have full rights in many ways, right, and in the risks that exist. And so why would we want others to have to endure that? And so I would hope that other organizations begin to, to develop programs that recognize the, the non-American, if you will, LGBT members in the community. And so whether that's, you know, specific programs for, for these individuals or programming for community members to be more um, welcoming and, and culturally sensitive for, you know, you know, there's many ways it could go. And so I really, what I would hope in terms of the intersectionality that we recognize our LGBT community is more than just our orientation. Huh? All of these issues impact, so racial, religious, immigration status, nationality. And I don't really know if I answered your question, but I really <laughs> that, that's my goal. I want our residents to know 
um, selfishly, I, I, I'm more our residents. <laughs> I want mm-hmm. our LGBT residents to know when they leave Freedom House, there's a community that will welcome them and receive them and let them know that, that they have a space here in our community. That's what I want. I mean, and, and it, it's so simple because, like you said, you want them to know that there's a welcoming community. Isn't that what we want? You know, I mean, so it's exactly. like, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, really, you want to go up to somebody and say, isn't that what we want? Then why would we not want to be? So we're coming into the home stretch. What's on the horizon for Freedom House and for TJ? And how can people that more people are are looking into it because, like I said, when I go to this conference in Chicago, the fact that they intentionally include members of the LGBT community, not only from Africa but from other countries, it is so important. Mm-hmm. And I, am, I would love to see that happen across the country. So what's on the horizon for Freedom House? How do people plug in? How can they give, even as they say, that time, talent, or tithes? Perfect. So I think a few things. One, stay involved, um, stay up to date, follow our social media um, on Facebook, type in Freedom House Detroit. Um, Make sure you put the Detroit in there because there's a Freedom House in D.C. That's a policy think tank. We're not affiliated with them. So follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at Freedom House D.E.T., um, check our website, stay up to date so you know what's going on um, in terms of our needs, any media um, media coverage or what's going on in the house from time to time. We can't show faces of residents, but um, you know we can be creative with some of our pictures to give people kind of a glimpse of what's going on here in the house. So, so you know that there's, again, a human element to what we do. Um, the other thing is we have our... 2017 annual dinner and auction Voices of Freedom coming up on uh, it's a f- three months away October 26, 2017 at the Athenium and Cleve Jones um, will be our keynote speaker and so oh. most notably known right for his work in terms of LGBT advocacy and organizing but within the last um, decade or so he's been very involved with Unite Here so a union working to protect the rights of um, workers in the hospitality industry, which generally are immigrants. Um, and so that intersection, again, right, that's that buzzword, intersection um, of the um, sexual orientation, gender identity, and nationality, right, really plays into what Cleve is working on these days and, again, what Freedom House is working on as well. Um, and then the other thing, you know, to brace people for, unknown, but we don't know about the future of our HUD funding. Um, mm. We just submitted our renewal application, and the reality is the funding priorities and target populations um, determined by HUD as well as our local continuum of care have not changed from last year. And so we're unsure if we're going to get our funding again um, next year, which would be our current budget, our current grant rather, will expire March 31st, 2018. And so we're really trying to diversify funds. And so anybody who... You know, of course, it always comes down to money, and I'm going to talk about volunteer stuff in a minute. Um, but anybody who is um, a professional at a corporation or a business or on a board that has access to discretionary funds or knows is or knows someone who has a family foundation that issues grants, right, um, anybody in, in any way who can help us connect to people in decision-making bodies that have access to funds, um, would be huge, right? We've been around for 34 years, but we're a small organization. And so really helping us get our foot in the door with some of these people is key. And so even a simple introduction would be a benefit. 
Um, in terms of volunteering, check our website, freedomhousedetroit.org. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a support icon, and then a menu will pop up with career and volunteer opportunities. So check that frequently. We post um, what our specific needs are. We'll also post specific needs on Facebook. Generally, our needs um, uh, are made up of volunteer drivers. Again, our residents don't have driver's license, so they can't get to their appointments because of the increased, um, the administration's increased enforcement efforts, not safe to take the bus depending on their immigration status. Mm. And so we have to provide transportation for 40 people to get to their educational programming, their um, medical, mental health appointments, et cetera. Um, So we're always looking for help with driving. Um, Anybody who's a a certified ESL teacher or has experience teaching English as a second language, coming in to be a language partner, helping people learn English as well as about American culture, fund development assistance, of course. Um, You you know, the the needs are great, of course. I shouldn't say of course, but uh, the building that we're in, St. Anne's former convent, we leased from the archdiocese, and it was built in 1888. And so the maintenance and the upkeep is often extensive and costly. So, um, you know, anybody who's a licensed general contractor, electrician, a plumber, if, again, if you're willing to contribute, we can pay for supplies, but if you can contribute, if you want to contribute supplies too, that's great. But if you can contribute mm-hmm. your, your skilled trade and your time, that would be a huge asset. Um, you know, so there are many ways to get involved. Generally, um, on, on that website that I mentioned, Carrie Bozeman is our new volunteer coordinator. Mm-hmm. Shoot her an email, um, let her know what your talents are, what you'd like to do, and generally speaking, we can find a way to plug you in. Um, organizing movie night, a game night, you know, the possibilities are endless, again, because we're... Sh- well, well, TJ, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about that. I think this is, like, so important. I know that there are people who are getting it. We need more people to get it. We be members of the human race, not of one country or the other. I thank you. Uh, enjoy your family when they're here. All right, that sounds great. And again, I thank you for the opportunity to chat with you and um, for your efforts with with your your blog, um, radio blog collections by Michelle Barnett. Mm-hmm. It's a great initiative. So thanks again for the time and the interest. Appreciate it and your support. Okay. I want to thank tonight's guest, Thomas T.J. Rogers, for joining us here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You can learn more about his work at Freedom House by visiting their Facebook page, Freedom House Detroit, where you'll find a link to the organization's website. Just a reminder, you can listen to the show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. That's all for tonight. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you and good night.